Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Compass Finding Our Direction. Here we discuss new evidence-based findings on the current topics in medicine. My name is Dr. Benjamin Senor, and I'm here today with Dr. Louis Koritsky. Dr. Koritsky has a case, a special case that hasn't been revealed to me, and he wants to get the audience's perspective on it and to see where we can go from here. So Dr. K, take it away. Well, thanks, Ben. I want to talk to you about a case that I'm perplexed about. And my perplexity led me to do a lot of thinking about prediabetes. And it's actually a personal case, a friend of mine. I have a friend and he weighs about 300 pounds. 10 years ago, he had a family doctor who put him on metformin because he had prediabetes. And that was certainly a reasonable thing. His BMI sure. qualified for him that. Now, he, remember, there is no medicine that actually has the indication to treat prediabetes. Mm -hmm. So he came to me, and he was lamenting the fact that he can't really afford any of the medicines that induce weight reduction that are so wonderful and valuable to people who have diabetes because all he has is prediabetes, and he's been on metformin for all this time, and his A1C hovers around the diabetic range, typically 6.1 to 6.3, but he's never been diagnosed with, with diabetes. So mm. the question I have for you, Ben, case, does he not have diabetes? Because my, my bet was that what has really been happening is the metformin doesn't doesn't actually prevent diabetes, it lowers your blood sugar. And so it, your sugar, your, the mechanisms of your diabetes were in gear when you first were diagnosed 10 years ago, this patient with prediabetes. And, and those have not changed. The, nothing has been shown to change the trajectory of the decline of beta cells. So I think that this man actually has diabetes and that if he stops his metformin, he will then become diabetic by our criteria because his sugars will no longer be controlled. And then he will avail himself of the medicines that are not only good treatment for his diabetes, but also will cause him to lose a substantial amount of weight, a, a task that he's been unable to do without the use of pharmacotherapy, which, as you likely know, is now recommended in the obesity guidelines, most recently from American Gastroenterologic Association, that pharmacotherapy for persons who are unable to attain their goals with diet and exercise should be considered strongly and considered lifelong therapy like we do for hypertension or dyslipidemia. So when we say that we prevent diabetes, Ben, are we really preventing diabetes or are we just masking its presence when it when it, the machinery is still progressing? And he actually went to his doctor, and his doctor um, was not was not very happy about the idea of stopping the metformin and allowing him to become diabetic, diabetic, so he could start on medicine if indeed he would. So tell me what you think: Are we really preventing diabetes when we use pharmacotherapy, or are we masking it and covering it up while it evolves? I think this is a very challenging and difficult question, Dr. K. I think the paradigm has shifted from years ago when, as you know, and you were practicing, metformin and insulin uh, are the oldest meds for that type 2 diabetes, and they're solid medications. But 
I think the focus now, as, as we spoke about previously, is largely based on risk reduction and cardiovascular outcomes trials. And that is concordant with SGLT2s and GLP1s. So in accordance with the Endocrine Society and Diabetes Association who've mapped out our algorithm for diabetes, I would ask if this patient has any cardio or renal comorbidities. And if so, then I would push for the GLP-1 or SGLT-2 medications that we spoke about in our previous podcast. However, if he doesn't have any of those comorbidities, metformin is a very evidence-based solid option for type 2 diabetes and glucose reduction. I assume diet and exercise has been tried. So he wants to lose weight, but he can't. He's tried as best he can. It, it kind of scares him because he feels like he's been, quote, protected. That since he's had metformin all this time, he doesn't have diabetes. And he's kind of proud of that, actually. <laughs> but I'm saying to him, you know, actually, I think you do have diabetes. And I think you just don't see it. And so it, it brought me even to question the trials I had looked at, like the largest trial in the U.S., the Diabetes Prevention Program. What they found was diet and exercise was very effective in, in uh, delaying the onset of progression to, to, to diabetes from prediabetes. And metformin only about half as effective. But that's still something to celebrate. There was a 20-some percent reduction in, in, in incident diabetes in pre-diabetics who uh, were started on the, the metformin. So I, I'm in a little bit of a difficult place. I, I don't want to ever tell anybody, hey, do this and you become diabetic and then we can, you can have money. Exactly. You know, but on the other hand, he's not going to be achieving success with the current tools that he's using and he's not going to be able to access the superior tools. And this, this man is a midlife gentleman who has a family history of, of vascular disease and if, if he's not availed of the categories of drugs that can reduce cardiovascular risk, like GLPs and SGLT2s, I think he's missing something, but he can't get them now. The question now I have is, do we know of any weight reduction, any pharmacological uh, agents that have weight reductions without cardiovascular outcomes that can help him, which we know of? Well, we do. And, and you're yeah. certainly right about that. And and there actually have been trials in almost everything you can imagine that causes weight loss, reduces the progression from prediabetes to diabetes overall. And there's some difference depending upon the ethnicity of the population. But overall, if you have prediabetes as manifest by a fasting sugar from 100 to 125, or a postprandial sugar from 140, 199, or an A1C 5.7 to 6.4 range, Someplace between 6 and 10% of people per year will go on to become diabetic if we do nothing. So yes. that's that's very predictable. And that can be cut typically by 20 to 40% by anything that reduces weight. So even old drugs like, do, do you remember the, the drug Orlistat that wasn't course, very popular because it had poor tolerability? Side effects. Yeah, and the same thing with the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, yes. the carbose. There's actually a study with the carbose where there were favorable cardiovascular outcomes, but it wasn't a pre-specified uh, endpoint. And there, are, there is a prevention study even with a carbose. Anything that will either lower sugar or lower body weight will reduce the number of cases of 
of incident diabetes. But to me, the game has gone beyond that. It's not just about reducing diabetes, it's reducing the consequences of diabetes. The cardiovascular outcomes, you know, you want and, to have- Yes, and real. So that's that's what I'm asking your opinion on. I, I had never thought of this carefully before. And, and with you being, you know, a recently practicing clinician and then in some ways, you know, see so your knowledge so full from residency, I wondered how the issue struck you. Like if it, it was your, your uncle and he came to you with this problem and he said, hey, I talked with this crazy guy, Karitsky. And <laughs> even though I was perfectly happy, he told me, yeah, that I might have diabetes anyway, even though my sugar looks good, but I can't get the medicine because I've never had the diagnosis. Should I stop? So that's my question to you, Dr. Senor. Should the patient stop and in all likelihood become then labeled as diabetic and have access to medicines that will promote substantial weight loss and, and cardiovascular and renal risk reduction? Or should he keep on the metformin and when he escapes that, which he likely will, Sometime in the future, should we wait for that to happen before we start one of the GLP? Yeah, it's a tough, tough now. Yeah, the way you put it like that, Dr. K, that's really, really tough. It's a tough question. But again, if it was my family, I would ask myself, what is going to kill this patient? Is it the retinopathy that's going to slowly make the patient go blind? The neuropathy that can cause numbness in your legs and, you know, make you extremely uncomfortable, maybe have an unsteady walk? Now, I'm not mitigating those symptoms at all they can be debilitating but i would focus more on the heart attacks and the strokes because those are what kills you renal disease can also cause profound effects in the body so i would also like to shoot for if it's feasible to get this patient on a glb glp1 or sglt2 especially if he has a history of cardiac disease or renal disease well i size it up pretty much the same way you do i think if, if time is we're on our side and we knew that one of the, the cardiovascular and renal risk reducing tools was going to be economically accessible because this gentleman is on a fixed, fixed income. Uh, he's just prior to a Medicare age, so he doesn't get the benefit of being on Medicare because he's always in his early 60s and he has to pay out of pocket and he's, he's already on a, a, a fixed income. If time were on our side and I could say, well, okay, next year, one of the most potent GLPs is going to be a generic and you'll be able to likely access it for a lot less. But that's not the case. And the thing is, is if he were my uncle, I would want him to take most likely terzepatide because right. it's the it's the one that has the most potent weight reduction. And this, this gentleman's 300 pounds is not securely placed on a frame that is seven feet tall. Instead, he's only a very modest height. So I would guess his his BMI is likely in the 40s or, or something like that. So he, he needs help and he's tried. And I, I was just in a precarious position. I don't want to advise anybody about their health when I'm not their doctor. But when a person asks me, well, what could I do about this? I present them the hypothetical and say, well, you could do this and you could do that. Talk to your doctor about it and get their advice because they're the one who knows you and should really ultimately make such decisions for you. Did you bring up the SGLT2 inhibitors for this patient. Yes, I did. And that would be a good option for him. Uh, but even those are, are quite expensive. He's not on Medicaid. So even those are several hundred dollars per month and he, he can't afford that. Anything else you want to add, Dr. K? Because that was a super, that's actually super interesting. But Well, I, I think the point is, 
what what I wanted to mostly talk to you this about is first I wanted to see if it struck you as as a conundrum and say well I really didn't think of it that way before and yes. now I'm not so sure it's it's not an obvious right or wrong direction so I'm still seeking opinions because what I'm asking a patient to consider doing after they've approved it with their doctor is not something that's typically done and I, and I'm wondering now even when we say that a person has prediabetes. I wonder if we should be changing the name to stage one diabetes because all their machinery is already deranged. And then if we do steps to to prevent development of diabetes, I think it should be diabetes in remission because we certainly haven't cured it. And, and maybe start thinking about if a person is on medic pharmacotherapy and they're still not meeting the diagnosis of diabetes, are they really pre-diabetic or are they just now a treated diabetic that we've been following over the long term? I mean, if you see a patient with heart failure and it's early heart failure and you put them on medicine and you do that echo down the road, their their uh, performance is better. Their ejection fraction got better. But we don't say, okay, you don't have heart failure anymore. We say you have treated heart failure. And that's what I think we are doing when we use pharmacotherapy, at least in some stage of the management of prediabetes. As you stated earlier, diet and exercise is extremely important and can help change the course of the disease. But I find that it is extremely hard to ask patients to try on a different lens and a new perspective that will help them in the long run. How do we get patients to adhere to the best non-pharmacological agents we have so that they can lower their A1C, lower their sugars, and lead a healthier lifestyle? Well, I think the message is a more complex one than is seen at first glance, because in the same time as we're telling people to exercise more, remember that some of the persons have diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain, which is made worse with exercise, and we're giving them insulin which stimulates appetite and weight gain. And we give them thiazolidine diones that increase body weight, even though it's not fast fat mass. It is discouraging when they see the scale look back at them with a higher weight. And because of cost, we're giving them sulfonuria, which stimulates insulin, which gives them hypoglycemia and weight gain. So on one hand, we're saying, watch your weight, exercise, and then in the mix of things we offer them to control their glucose, we do things that make that task more difficult for them. I was so grateful to the American Gastroenterologic Association in their guideline this year when they said, 22, 2022 was rather than 23, they said, the even though diet and exercise can be beneficial for many individuals, it is unlikely over the long term to be able to be used by majority of folks who suffer with weight management issues. And I think that's the, the fact of it. I think that the battle to control weight for those who have weight management issues is extremely difficult and very, very frustrating. And until we have better tools that will enable people to lose amounts of weight without incurring real pain about the starvation or caloric, caloric deprivation, I, I think that we have to think more about pharmacotherapy. I mean, we could say the same thing about hypertension. People could have major improvements in their blood pressure with, with the diet and exercise, and yet internationally, the rates of control of hypertension are very, very, very little over the last two or three decades. So 
there, while we shouldn't dismiss, I agree with you, that it would be wonderful to harness the power of diet exercise, I think we have to deal with the realities that until we find tools to better harness that power, we have to give patients the assistance of providing them steps that will help them achieve their goals in addition to the best they can do with diet and exercise. Thanks, Dr. K, for your interesting case and your time. Join us next time on the Clinical Compass, Finding Our Direction. opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the views of UCF and HCA entities. The recommendations in this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Please see your primary care physician for medical care regarding any advice heard in this podcast. I would like to disclose that Dr. Louis Kuritsky is or has been a consultant for Lilly, Behringer Ingelheim, Nova Nordisk, Sanofi, and Bayer.